Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're going to talk about making your newsroom more gender equitable. What do we mean by that? Whether it's the stories we write, the guests we invite onto our shows, or the people we're giving the platform to, newsrooms should set high standards. When we get that wrong, misogyny gets unchallenged, or worse, encouraged. That was the case with actor Lawrence Fox, who belittled journalist Ava Evans on air last week on GB News, and the show host Dan Wooten just giggled along instead of stepping in. Diversity is both the solution and a business imperative, says this week's guest, Luba Kosova. She's an independent audience strategy consultant and the author of the report From Outraged to Opportunity, The Missing Perspective of Women in News. Her research has shown that women who push for better reporting standards face an uphill battle and often leave the industry due to burnout and demoralisation. And it's even worse for women of colour. We're going to discuss how to change that, how to meaningfully improve the way women are reported on and empowered in the newsroom. All of that's coming up, so don't go anywhere. Luba, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you at last. Um, we were having a little laugh off camera about your extensive book collection behind you, uh, a small percentage of which you uh, admitted you haven't read yet. <laughs> Maybe our audience will relate to that. I think we're all in that situation. But also interesting is you're, you're also currently working on a book as well. Tell us more. Uh, yes, uh, that's really funny because uh, everyone is taken aback by the book collection and then I reveal that I've barely read any of them and then it becomes less <laughs> exciting. <laughs> um, yes, about the book. So I'm really excited to be researching a book on emotional empowerment at the moment, looking at how we can um, navigate uh, our emotions such that we feel more empowered. And it comes from the uh, bias that we hold where we really treat our emotions as enemies uh, and we don't give them the credit that they they deserve and we don't realize what high proportion of our decision making is actually based on emotions. So the idea is to, to unpack some of the key emotions that either act as barriers or, or activate our, our happiness. Awesome. How far are you into uh, the book preparation and the book writing? So I haven't started the writing, but I have kind of a structure in my head. And um, I've done 75 interviews out of 100, um, which is the most exciting part. It's exciting and very um, tough at the same time because people share stories that stay with you for a very long time. Awesome. You, you sound a bit like me in that the, the interviewing part is the really fun part, isn't it? It's the really gripping part. And then it gets to the writing and it's like, I've got to now translate this into coherent copy. And that's uh, the, the part that obviously takes takes a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know whether you're like that, but there comes a time when I've been faced with hundreds of sources. I have this block and I'm like, I just can't make sense of this. And then invariably always you just slip on it and then a narrative emerges in your head and then you can start working with that and structuring it and it's almost it's normally when you're doing busy work the washing up in the shower or anything like that you think suddenly it dawns on you there's my red thread that runs through the uh the sources right exactly yeah so this block never lasts forever that's the takeout for anyone listening <laughs> 
one of the other things you've been writing um, extensively about is the impact of um, burnout on gender-focused reporters. And by that, I suppose we mean journalists who are covering topics like sexual violence, reproductive health, gender equality, sexism, and gender-focused um, discrimination. Why is that a topic that you care so much about? There is a societal element to it. We live in an age where um, pro-male social norms are hardening. There is a backlash and resistance to gender equality in um, around the globe. Uh, and at the same time, women journalists are much more likely, due to those uh, social norms, to be attacked for their writing online and offline and to suffer severe mental health challenges. And then there are the structural issues within journalism itself. Uh, which uh, comes uh, uh, on several levels. One, um, there is misperception then that stories uh, that um, focus on a gender issue are soft news and they are automatically deprioritized from the editorial agenda. So uh, reporters who work on this issue have to work very hard to push through the heavy door to just pitch their stories. Um, then there is also the newsroom cultures uh, tend to default to certain type of stories. And very often there is a, an occlusion issue, very serious blind spot in the news industry, which means that women editors who sit at the table, very often I spoke with, with many um, news editors who said that they would pitch a story and, and they would be dismissed by the man sitting at the table saying, well, this is not really a story. So as a result of all, all this, very small portion, 0.02% of global news coverage online is dedicated to the issues that you mentioned at the beginning, issues that are important, that touch on seven structural um, inequality gaps between men and women. Oh yeah, and one other thing I really want to mention is that um, news cultures are very headline-focused and not human-centric. Chasing the scoop is so important that very often it comes at the expense of the, of the human beings that are involved in the story, whether they are reporters or the sources. Um, they are treated as means to an end, the end being the story. And, I, and it's really important that journalism reverses its thinking if it's to survive as an industry and to thrive and to put the human beings along the whole news value chain and the centre of what it does. Mm. There's a lot there to unpack, uh, Lila. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're right, it's an incredibly complex issue. I suppose one part of that I do find surprising is the perception that some of these topics are soft. I mean, in recent years, the Me Too movement has been really palpable to see. It's been a real, like, force for of, of, of awareness. But, you know, your research on, on this does indicate that online global news coverage is just not commensurate with that general societal shift. You know, it really hasn't kept pace with the, the demand in our audience, I suppose. There is, I think, slight unfortunate misperception that the Me Too movement has unpacked the importance of gender equality issues um, and we're now there. And unfortunately, that's not the case. There is another article I published recently which showed that actually the coverage about the Me Too peaked in 2018 and has been going down since. And actually, COVID had a real 
negative impact on all these issues and on coverage um, relevant to women where there was additional decline and women came out of focus, not least because they were out of the structural lens of society at the time. Um, there are many, many reasons why that happened. So actually, we are seeing a decline in interest in gender equality stories in the news um, and amongst journalists. Partly the reason, certainly in the UK, is because there is um, the belief that this uh, problem is now sorted. And actually, for I interviewed Tracy McVeigh, who is an editor at The Guardian, for my from Outraged Opportunity, and she really talked about this problem, saying uh, basically there is this perception and there is nothing more to say about gender equality. It's been resolved, the pay gap has been resolved. Women obviously can have maternity leave. You can't fire anyone from journalism, even if you wanted to. There is nothing more to talk about. And it's that belief that impedes to some degree the uh, growth of the coverage uh, of news that are relevant to women. And by the way, by that, I don't mean just news uh, about reproductive health or abortion that are very specifically relevant to, to women, but any news stories about the um, living crisis or any um, any story have angles that are more relevant to women and, and other angles that are relevant to men. And this is what I define as really uh, gender sensitive or gender inclusive coverage. Mm. So <clears throat> I guess what I, what I take from that response is that if you are a woman who does see that these issues are still ongoing, and the, the the awareness is slipping around whatever it is, if it's domestic violence, if it's reproductive health, what, no matter what these gender-focused topics are, it can be exhausting to constantly make the case for your newsroom to be covering it because there's this narrative that it's no longer an issue it's dealt with. Is that a fair summary, Lubel? It's a fair summary to say that uh, journalists very often believe that gender equality has been dealt with and is no longer a story. And when I asked many um, editors what they thought the bigger issues, everyone um, deprioritized gender equality in newsrooms or in, in journalism or in society and acknowledged, they were more likely to acknowledge that there is a racial issue, that the racial inequities is a bigger problem in journalism than gender, but almost discounting the gender issue and just focusing on race. Mm. I feel like part of your answer before was kind of that COVID came along and it took attention away from some of these gender-related issues. Did you not see that there was potentially uh, an intersection where people like Victoria Derbyshire were talking about domestic violence in lockdown? Was that not, you know, a, a good thing? Oh, that is a great thing. But what happened during COVID is that... Um, women were pushed out of the uh, news lens uh, significantly more than before. Partly that was because men essentially in power took the reins and that happened in politics and in science because some of the frames that news was pushing out was the war frame and in time of war, what do we do when men take control and women were pushed out of the narrative in that way. Uh, also, because there was such crisis, the pandemic was so overwhelming, journalists tended to revert to well-known um, 
sources for their storytelling and they were under a lot of time pressure. So they went to, and who are the best known sources? They're men who are established in, in, in the discipline. So essentially women perspectives were marginalized. Uh, uh, even further than before. And that's something we saw evidentially in the second report that I wrote, The Misperspectives of Women in COVID News. Um, so uh, there was the, the so-called shadow pandemic, which was the online violence that women and children were subjected to during the period, which proliferated. There was little uh, increase of focus in coverage on those issues. And perhaps for our, for people like you and I, who are very sensitized and look for those angles, we would have seen them. But when you analyze millions of stories, it was fractional and completely insignificant. Fair. So what do you think is a, a takeaway from the, the pandemic then? In a time of crisis, when accountability is reduced, when pressure is on reporters to deliver stories when you know sources are scattered as it were uh, you know a part of your answer there what could have been done differently from your perspective so first of all having awareness and measuring what's going on is really important and that's something that bbc 5050 uh project is they're very passionate about uh measuring and having benchmarks uh so that um journalists at grassroots level, as well as leadership, are, are aware of what the proportion of sources, for example, or voices are belong to different groups. Um, and that's hard to do when you're really busy, but it's really important. Another thing um, is uh, that can be done differently, in, uh, I suppose, next time, is to provide journalists with more databases of uh, uh, varied sources, uh, women of, and people of different colours, because they're shown having those databases of um, experts and contributors ready has shown to produce good results in, in improving the proportion of women experts who are interviewed for and whose perspectives is locked in news stories. So uh, it's really important to, to be aware. And actually, it's really interesting because I spoke with Laura Zelenko from New Voices program at Bloomberg and with Marianne Seacott, um, who wrote The Authority Gap, Obviously, she's an amazing journalist, broadcaster. And they both uh, uh, explain how uh, whenever you speak to journalists and to editors, they invariably think that their coverage is more balanced than it is. Mm. And that's the bias. We tend to think that we're doing well. And in fact, if we have 35% of women in anything, we think, oh, well, that's a good result because we're so biased and so used to um, women being a real minority. And one thing that um, uh, I remember Marianne Seacard suggesting that journalists should do is always ask themselves, would I have written this about a man? If the answer is no, then don't write it. And uh, BBC, for example, say, and The Guardian, they look, do we have enough uh, sources, enough contributors who are women? If not, send the story back, do better, find someone else. Uh, again, there is, um, you can have policies in place. Uh, I think at uh, Mint in India and at Bloomberg, they have policies which preclude having mammals. So you have to have women 
uh, as part of your panels and, and, and you can decide what that proportion is depending on what society you live in and how patriarchal it is. Tons of ideas in all my reports about things that can be done, but awareness has to be the first point, being deliberate and being conscious of the fact that we mm-hmm. are an industry that essentially reflects back biases. We don't break them. I do think that makes a lot of sense in normal times. What I would say, just to counter that slightly, is during a crisis such as the coronavirus pandemic, do you really think it matters to audiences whether they have a perfect 50-50 split on the sources that they're listening to when really their top priority would be getting the most accurate health information when there is also so much misinformation out there? Does Does the you know, the gender split there really matter during a time of crisis is my question. I think that's a very fair question. And perhaps going for parity is too uh, unrealistic in times of crisis when there is so much pressure on everyone involved. However, what is really problematic is when women's perspectives are missed out. And there was, uh, I don't know if you remember, but at some point the government during uh, one of the uh, lockouts announced that, uh, or after the lockout, that um, women could go back to work. However, they hadn't thought because it was an all-men governmental group that was uh, resolving the issues. They hadn't thought of the fact that the nurseries were closed, so women couldn't go back to work. And the problem is when news journalists Mm -hmm. don't ask those questions. And they didn't, and they hadn't. So there are structural issues that no one's uncovering because there aren't enough women sharing what their challenges are, such that they're picked up either by news or by, uh, by the government. So I did this interview with Luba before the Lawrence Fox controversy. For those who didn't see the story, Fox made misogynistic comments live on GB News aimed at Joe Media journalist Ava Evans, where he said, quote... Who would want to shag that? All because he disagreed with her political views. There was huge social media outcry as Ofcom received more than 8,000 complaints. Show host Dan Wooten was suspended for failing to challenge the comments. Fox later apologised but was sacked by the broadcaster, alongside GB News host Calvin Robinson, who voiced his support for Fox. How true do Luba's words now appear? Would you have written, or in this case said, this about a man? If not, don't run it. It's very hard to imagine Fox's comments in reverse going out on live television. This is why diversity matters, because it raises new perspectives, questions and objections that would, ideally, prevent these sorts of comments going unchecked. However, that doesn't make it easy for those people in the room vouching for gender-focused reporting and better standards when reporting on them. Those people face enormous burnout because they are constantly making the case for its prioritisation, It's even worse for people at the intersection of marginalised groups, for example, women of colour. All women in news uh, leadership face uh, certain uh, barriers. Um, And um, one of the uh, the barriers that um, they face in terms of being included in decision-making is that there are fewer of them than men, that there is uh, uh, the... uh, stubborn um, perseverance of the cultural stereotypes of soft versus hard beats that disadvantage women and the authority and the power gap that they experience. So that's valid for everyone. Then... So can I jump in at that point and just clarify, is that to say that stories that they see as important to their 
their group and their intersection are not necessarily seen as important in the wider uh, news uh, decision making process. Yes. So the way uh, we define inclusion is to what extent they were able to influence decision making when it comes to editorial agenda. So yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the answer is no, they don't feel as included. And these are the main three barriers, but there are many more. And then when you overlay race onto that, mm-hmm. women of color face all these barriers, but on top of that, they face some additional barriers, which is um, systematic sidelining. Often they would, for example, be uh, given and deliver very complex projects. They're seen as incredibly good at delivering the work, but then when it comes to promotion, they're sidelined. There is enormous amount of loneliness. Uh, I heard stories of women being asked, uh, can you please explain to us the story of that man that was killed in the US? That's early on, the George Floyd story. And then for months they weren't asked, so how are you doing? Are you all right? When they were suffering enormously from all the racism that was essentially uncovered off the back of the George Floyd story. And then there is also another key barrier that uh, women of color are less likely to be supported, to be given opportunities for promotion. So there are a lot of additional barriers that they face. And and there is um, an irony which is very damaging, is that often it is women of color that are asked to lead DI initiatives that aim to improve their representation in news or to resolve their exclusion problem. So you're asking the disadvantaged person to resolve the problem of their own underrepresentation at a great cost to their own careers because DEI initiatives have shown to impede on people's opportunity to be promoted in news. So that's another unfairness. So they tend to be promoted less, given more work, they burn out, they feel they're more likely to feel lonely, and there are no retention programs to keep them and they tend to move out. Um, either to another organization or out of the industry at a much greater rate. The attrition amongst women of color in news is much greater than amongst white uh, women and men. That was um, that was heavy. And I just think it's such a shocking insight that putting the onus on women at the intersection results in them you know, sacrificing their own careers, sacrificing their own mental health. And even, you know, what you kind of said at the start and, and carries through now is that even when you put women in those positions of leadership, then I, I, it doesn't necessarily translate into a real world impact. Spot on, because they are, you have to have, um, and New York Times have done an extraordinary work on this, and I have a case study in the latest report on them, but they've really unpacked the problem. So, You've got to be from the privileged editorial group who tend to be white men, as in the New York Times traditionally, uh, that helps you to know how to get the best beats. What are the unwritten rules within the the culture of the organization that help you to move forward? And all um, people who are marginalized, who come into this news leadership, whether they're women or certainly women of color, they are not privy to those rules. And therefore, they remain on the margin. This is the disadvantage you spoke about before: is when you're you don't have the privilege. That's where they're not starting on the same starting line as their white privileged male peers. Absolutely, and they even though they're in those places, they find out about decisions after they've been made. Their stories are being dismissed as non-stories. Or I, I've had an example. I mean, shocking examples of some an editor of color turning up for her first shift and being pointed to the bin because she's mistaken 
for the uh, for the cleaner. I mean, it is, and that happens today in 2022. Well, it happened in 2022-21. So these are the things that people of color and women specifically experience, but the industry doesn't talk about. Actually, there is another issue that we are exceptionally good in journalism at holding others to account, but we're less ready to do so when it comes to ourselves. Right. I feel like the big takeaway of that is that diversity initiatives alone are not going to fix this problem because getting them through the door, they eventually feel isolated and burnt out and ineffective. So what's the alternative, Luba? This is such a great conclusion you just made, Jacob, that that is totally what we found in our research. So the solution is that we've got to to tackle it at a societal level, which is really hard, but we can do so through our journalism at a uh, organizational level and then at individual level. But what happens at the moment, most initiatives are targeted at individuals and they fail to look at structural problems at an industry level or at societal level. And that deems them to failure. Uh, and then you just pointed out the additional issue of DEI initiatives being given to people with less power. They fizzle out because often they're not being measured. There are no targets attached to them. And they're often done as a, the so-called bake sale approach where you throw in an initiative to be seen as doing something, but you don't really uh, wholeheartedly buy into it. So what we need is buy-in at a, at a senior level and at a grassroots level. Right. And we need people in uh, overrepresented groups in news organizations, wh- whether that's white men or white women, whoever is overrepresented, to, to sponsor those initiatives, to take accountability for them and not to thrust the underrepresented groups to resolve the problem. And also to bring in experts. Just because you have a lived experience of being a person of color or being a woman doesn't make you an expert in how to resolve the inequity in news. But there are people with extraordinary expertise out there. So bringing them in to help the organization resolve uh, uh, issues is really important. Another thing that that's shown to be incredibly important is to tie in your diversity uh, goals and ambitions to your mission and your values. And then that trickles down to the objectives and performance reviews. So there's no excuse for it to fail, right? Exactly. You bake it into your business model. Mm. And there is money to be made from equitable journalism, actually. Tell me about that. So um, my business partner, Richard Addy at ACAS, developed the first uh, business case for gender equity in news as part of the From Outraged Opportunity, the latest report that, that we published. And he's written a chapter there. In the last, is it five or seven years, news industry has shrunk uh, in terms of revenues by 25%. And through the forecasting uh, based on various um, uh, um, sources, Richard estimated that if nothing happens and the news industry's behavior remains as it is, it will shrink by another 25% in the next five years. Is that is that in the UK? That's globally. Sorry, I should say that now I'm talking about, uh, yeah, glo- globally. 
What we also found through analysis of 1,700 news websites from 68 countries um, in the world and analysed uh, the gender gap between men and women and found that gap to be between 15 and 16% in favour of men consuming more news than women. Now, what we... Um, we then stress tested that gap uh, and said, okay, is it realistic that that gap ever be closed? No, because there are structural issues that news has no influence over. And then Richard took the World Economic Forum's um, gender gap index and shaved off a few percentages. So the addressable gap is, is between 11 and 12%. And then he calculated that if the industry was to close um, the gap by one percentage point every year, and that means bringing more women without losing men, then we're looking at um, 38 billion additional revenues by 2032 and 11 billion cumulative additional revenues by um, in the next five years. And so to, to achieve that, the news industry would have to look at uh, producing more gender equitable journalism along the whole news value chain. So have more editors who are women, uh, more women in newsrooms, uh, in news gathering, more women who are contributors, expert sources, uh, uh, then um products which are designed perhaps to the needs of women in news and then of course uh, leading to more consumption of news by women and in the from outrage to opportunity there are many many themes a recommendation themes solution themes that we've identified and uh, so 12 themes and underneath those themes there are about 100 ideas of what news providers can do to improve uh, their journalism to be able to make it more inclusive I suppose alongside that, you know, as we've as we've said so far, it, you know, getting women in the building is is clearly good for the uh, business side of things, but they also need to be feel more supported uh, in order to retain them, keep them, you know, motivated, feel like they're having uh, an impact in the organisation, so that they're not burning out. What can newsrooms do to keep women in the building, sustain them, retain them? So, again, it's really, really important, as I mentioned earlier, to have um, solutions that look at eliminating or reducing the structural disadvantages that women face. And, and one such thing is having the right policies in place. One of the policies that is notably missing uh, for many news organisations is a safety policy. Uh, I spoke with many editors and actually one IFRA have done research into it as well as ICFJ looking at uh, the barriers that women face. And the conclusion is that the news industry often is turning blind eye on the issues of safety. So having safety policies in place as well as flexible work and childcare and all the um, various uh, equal pay, uh, different policies that are shown to lead to retention of women. Um, then uh, there is also one of the key barriers for women is uh, moving from middle management tier 
to leadership. So it's those retention programs that are really, really important. But looking at these retention programs from the uh, perspective, basically intersectionally, look at what are the different things we need to do for different mm. groups of women. And also very importantly is to have... Um, for men in power to champion women uh, and see that as a revenue generating, not just equitable, the right thing to do, but something that will essentially eventually lead to more uh, revenue generation because women are more likely to turn away from news now. We're seeing that. They're more likely to feel uh, completely... Um, overwhelmed, more depressed by news. And it's partly because they don't see themselves reflected or their needs reflected in the news that's being produced. Mm. Well, I think that's completely understandable because, I mean, nobody wants to work in a, for a company or in an industry where they don't feel protected and safe and, and that, that their employers aren't invested in that safety and security. They, they wouldn't want to work somewhere where their views are not respected and there's no career path for them up and there's you know, no support on the way up and there's no allies and champions to help them on the way up. So I think policies that speak to those elements are clearly going to help women feel like this is an industry that wants me and needs me and I'm, I'm going to be able to have an impact by being at my station. And you're absolutely right. And actually another thing that's really important is for us not to take a, an individual frame and attack men as such because nowhere have we seen positive impact being born out of someone being shamed and guilted into something. They need to really want to do it. Right. And the more we look at the problem of inequity as a structural issue that affects everyone, um, uh, and obviously w women are incredibly impacted, but many men fall into that structural problem. They learn to do this. The more we overlay the structural lens, the more likely I think we are to succeed rather than point fingers at individual people. And then they, they become fearful and then no one wants to feel shame. They turn away from the whole thing and disengage. Right. Because I think if I've taken anything from this conversation so far, you know, the industry broadly needs more champions and allies that are going to help marginalized women and women of color be at the same starting point as them, yeah. essentially, and, and, you know, give them the foot up that they potentially need. And so that they're, you know, doing this job on the, on the same equal footing. So Champ champions and policies and uh, yep, yeah, enshrined in specific policies, because that keeps it accountable. And it's not just then, you know, a warm feeling that, you know, we're doing this out of a goodwill. It's actually because there's a business need and there's, you know, an industry need and there's, um, you know, an imperative here to do it. Absolutely. I couldn't have summarized any better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could have done. But um, Luba, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your challenging and really thoughtful questions. I really appreciate your time, Jacob. Thank you very much. There's a lot to unpack here. Women and diversity initiatives alone will not bring about greater gender-focused stories and better reporting standards. What newsrooms need are champions from over-represented groups in positions of power, leading the charge and keeping up the momentum. Don't leave it to people from marginalised groups to fix your under-representation problem. Policies that ensure accountability and consistency also play a key role. 
Let us know how your newsroom is thinking about these challenges. Find me on Twitter slash X at JP's New Journalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms. That's SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.